Voicebox, KALW's weekly music series all about the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Chloe Veltman and I'm thrilled to be here with you tonight once again. Today is an extra special occasion. This month, KLW is marking its 70th birthday. The station, which was founded in 1941, is the oldest non-commercial FM radio station west of the Mississippi. And it's going stronger and more innovative than ever before. We're going to celebrate this auspicious occasion in style here on Voicebox this week with a trip back through time to 1941, the year that KLW was born, as I just mentioned. Over the next hour, we'll have a listen to some songs that defined that year and chat about the artists who made those melodies their own, both back in the day and in more recent decades. After all, there's no greater sign of a song's popularity and endurance than subsequent interpretations of the track by singers from other places, times and even genres. To help us out on our musical history tour, I'm super lucky to be joined in the studio tonight by none other than KLW's own Alan Farley. Hello, Alan. Well, I, it's it's great to be here. It's it's a strange sensation to be at the other side of the microphone. Yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> I'm very honoured to have you here. <laughs> thank, thank you for asking. Oh, well, thanks so much for staying at the station late tonight for Voicebox's homage to KLW's birthday. Of course, many of you will be familiar with Alan's terrific programmes, Open Air and My Favourite Things, the latter of which I had the pleasure of being invited on as a guest a while back. I honestly can't think of a better person to be here tonight than Alan, both for his intimate connection with KLW and broad and deep knowledge of music. Alan, you've been here at the station for quite a long time, right? Can you tell us about how you got involved with KLW? Yes, I've been here not quite since 1941, although <laughs> sometimes it seems like it, but uh, actually it was 1975. Um, I had actually had my basic training in radio at, at KPFA and worked there for a number of years and went away and came back and didn't have a job and uh, was looking for work. And I was looking at the posting, civil service postings in City Hall, and there was a radio station posting for an announcer-operator at this station, KALW, I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. Well, I applied, I took the test, and I got the job, and I've been here ever since. So has the station changed much since you joined? Oh, it's changed tremendously, because in in those years, 1975, there was an antenna on top of uh, O'Connell Technical School, which is where the building, the station was located at uh, 20th and Harrison. And there were maybe a few hundred listeners, but just about that time, National Public Radio came into existence, and KLW became an affiliate of National Public Radio, and the big thing is we moved our transmitter to Twin Peaks, mm. just about the same time that I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, we were on the air not 24 hours, just 18 hours a day. In fact, m- my first uh, month there, I alternated. I was doing the opening shift mm-hmm. for some weeks, and then the afternoon shift other weeks, which is really bizarre. Confusing. Yeah. But, uh, and the programming, aside from National Public Radio, All Things Considered was first, before Morning Edition. There was just All Things Considered, and it was an hour, and it came over phone lines. Oh, and it wow. sounded like it came over phone lines. Gosh. Yeah. It's hard to imagine <laughs> today, isn't it? And we would, what we would do, we would record it and rebroadcast it the next morning. 
in, oh. which is where, of course, eventually Morning Edition took over. And for the other programming, well, we, we are owned by the school district. And so we did some programs with some of the schools, and there was one very inventive teacher who had a, a drama class, and she would do a drama just about every week. But there were some uh, other, other teachers who brought in students who would sort of play DJ for an hour. Mm-hmm. And then anything that you could get to broadcast on the radio that was free, mm-hmm. you could find it on KALW. I remember the, the American Chemical Society had a weekly... <laughs> 15-minute <laughs> program about chemistry. We broadcast that. Wow. Was that interesting? I guess it was. It wasn't purely promotional. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, And the University of Texas at that time, uh, I don't know if they still have the Longhorn Radio Network, but this is you know, a syndicated. We got these tapes in the mail. This is before we had the, the satellite connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I say we had uh, NPR via the phone line, and most everything else was on recorded tape that we got in the mail. So I know, obviously, in 1941, you were a mere sprog of a lad and um, and not working in radio at that point. But can you tell us about the station's roots and early years? Well, when it started, it was you know an experimental station at the World's Fair. And mm-hmm. when the World's Fair was over, they gave it to the school district. And uh, I'm not sure about the very earliest years what they did with it, but eventually it became just sort of a toy, an instrumental, uh, rather instructional thing. And they... They taught people, they had classes in how to work on radio, how to Hmm. run a radio station. And when I got there, they were still doing some of that each week. In fact, one of my jobs at the time was to train each week two uh, students in their program Mm -hmm. to uh, operate the controls and be on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so, depending on the quality, uh, of course, it didn't add a lot to the professional sound of, of KLW in those years, but... It, you know, it had a, had its purpose, and in fact, a number of those students did go on later on to to work at the professional stations in the in the Bay Area. And I know that there were, we broadcast. I've been told way back the uh, the, the Standard Hour, which was uh, a program su- supported by the Standard Oil, which now is Chevron. Chevron, right. Uh, they had a weekly uh, classical music program, and I think the San Francisco Symphony was involved in that wow. back in the early years of KALW. Gosh, wow. It was uh, quite a different station then. Of course, though, we still have classical music on the station today. So thinking about the year 1941, um, of course, the Second World War had broken out two years previously, and uh, the reality of the U.S.'s impending involvement was looming large throughout that year. But it strikes me that many people in this country were sort of in denial, um, you know, regarding the conflict to an extent as Europe's problem. Um, but in the meantime, the dance halls throbbed with the sound of big band jazz and Tommy Dorsey's orchestra, laced with the velveteen vocals of Frank Sinatra, ruled the airwaves that year. This love of mine goes on and on Though life is empty Since you have gone You're always on my mind Though out of sight If 
you've just tuned in, hello. This is Voice Box on 91.7 FM. And this month, KALW turns 70. The station's major anchor, Alan Farley, is with me in the studio to celebrate this landmark moment in the station's history. We're exploring the songs of 1941 and the singers who turned those songs into hits. We just kicked off tonight's playlist with one of the big band chart toppers of the year, This Love of Mine. The song was sung by Frank Sinatra, who at the time was the lead vocalist with Tommy Dorsey's orchestra. The song was written by Frank Sinatra, Sol Parker and Hank Sanicola and was first released by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra on audio single in 1941. So, Alan, can you tell us about the big band music phenomenon of of that era, please? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, after I came to KALW, it it sort of decided to change its format to be music of the big band era for a number of years, and uh, there were a couple of people who had worked at other radio stations Mm -hmm. who came and did regular programs, and and that's what actually led me to, to start my interest in Noel Coward, because I thought, well, of, of that era, I mean, I was I was becoming interested in Coward. I thought mm-hmm. that would fit in with this format, so I I started a program called the Songs of Noel Coward, which I did for for about five years, uh-huh. and then we eventually changed our format to news and information, and then we've changed it again, of course, now to be much more than that, sort mm-hmm. of be uh, eclectic everything. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't remember much of the big band era. I do remember that uh, certainly during those years, uh, the, the Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and the Andrews Sisters, those were the the, the, the people you heard on the radio all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that format was so popular? What, why, what was it about it that captured people's imaginations so? I don't know. Maybe it was an escape from the realities of the war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very po- possible. I and mean, people could sort of go out dancing on, on the weekend and forget their troubles. And uh, I guess the music is so lush and the voices i mean like frank sinatra's voice is is so captivating and um i suppose there's a magnetic quality to it that people loved it's still great when you when they uh when they played at the, at the baseball park you know <laughs> that's true it's true so what about the the these singers and, and these star vocalists and the band leaders like tommy dorsey i mean were they real celebrities in back in the day or did they become celebrities oh since? Yeah. yeah no they were yeah. They were. I mean, and Frank Sinatra got, you know, crowds like the Beatles did in their day. Oh. These screaming teenagers, uh, Bobby Soxers, they were called mm-hmm. in, those, in those years. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, I suppose, because at least to a contemporary ear that's brought up on Lady Gaga and, and so on, it all sounds extremely, extremely tame right. um, and almost prim. But I mean, the music is extremely rich and, and, and it's, it's sexy in its own way, too, as well. So I'd like to turn now to another great big band hit of 1941. This is Duke Ellington's Take the A Train. Um, this jazz standard was written by Billy Strayhorn actually in 1938, but it became a signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra soon after the band debuted the song in 1941. And it became very popular when Ella Fitzgerald sang it with the Duke Ellington Orchestra in the 1950s. I mean, it's got a great drive to it. Do you, oh, do you like this song? Oh, yeah, there's nobody better than Ella Fitzgerald, too, for a song. Yeah, she gives it such a swing, doesn't she? So um, I thought we could listen now to um, to this 1956 recording I have of uh, Take the A Train, which features Ella Fitzgerald with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And then for kicks, while we're still on the subject of trains, um, I thought we could listen to an interesting adaptation of Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was a Glenn Miller orchestra track from 1941. But this version that we're going to hear called Sonder Zug nach 
Pankow, the special train to Pankow is how it translates, is quite a, has a completely different mood. It's in, in German um, and because it comes from 1983, it has this whole political satirical edge to it. And um, it's uh, sung by this German rock musician and composer by the name of Udo Lindenberg. You must take the A train to Go to Sugar Hill way up in Harlem If you miss the A train You find you've missed the quickest way to Harlem Hurry, get on, now it's coming Listen to those rails are thrumming Oh boy, get on the A train KALW's Voice Box. On tonight's show, Alan Farley is here with me. We're playing tracks from 1941 or inspired by songs that were written in 1941 to celebrate KALW's 70th birthday that is happening this month. So um, what did you think of those two very different train songs um, that we just heard, Alan? I mean, the first, once again, was was from the period, well, actually from 1956. It was Ella Fitzgerald with the, with the Duke Ellington Orchestra singing Take the A Train. That song was... Uh, was a track from uh, from the period from the nineteen from nineteen forty one, and then we heard this nineteen eighty three interpretation of Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was a Glenn Miller song um, that comes from nineteen eighty three, the German version that that was sung by Udo Lindenberg. So two very different songs that have their roots in uh, the big band era, which it proves really that they both they're durable. I mean, the, the uh, especially the Chattanooga Choo Choo in a completely different language and, and different lyrics, but the basic melody, you know, it's it's catchy. It it, it persists in this, and with take the A train, that that that's a classic. You know, that, that will be around forever. I think. Right, and um, and actually, the the way Ella sings it is so beautiful as well, isn't it? It's got this ease to it. She makes train travel sound so effortless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of New Yorkers who wouldn't agree with her her way of looking at the. the, the subway. But. And I was looking at the at the list, and then I mean, take the A train made. I think all of this is one of the top tunes of 1941 in the the top ten. So I thought maybe we should move on at this point to talking about some of the war-inspired songs of 1941, of which there were were many, Um, and we could play, to begin with, a couple of contrasting tracks. What do you know of the song Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, Alan? I know that even today, the recording, the Andrew Sisters recording, is is one of the songs that's used in Paul Taylor's uh, Company B, uh, ah. you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's important. It's still dance song here. Yeah, it is. It's still vibrant. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a huge hit for the Andrews Sisters, right? In that year. Yes. So, 
what we're going to do is we're going to play a version of the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, which Bette Midler performed. Um, she made a hit out of the song in 1973, um, which was, of course, towards the end of the Vietnam War. Um, do you think that the song took on a similar or different meaning when it was performed in the 70s, Alan? Gee. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, because originally it was written around the Second World War. Then you hear Bette Midler singing it in the 70s around the Vietnam War. I wonder if it would have meant the same thing to people. Probably not. Because then the way it's staged with Paul Taylor is because, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's the soldiers in uniform mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. So it's sort of supporting the troops. Yeah. Huh. Which uh, probably in 73, that wasn't a popular sentiment. No, I'm, I imagine not. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, support the troops, but not the war, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but after hearing, in a minute, we're going to hear Bette Midler with her version of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And then we're going to play another iconic war song from 1941, the birth year of KLW, There'll Be Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover. And the song made uh, was made famous by Vera Lynn with her 1942 recording, which is one of the best known recordings. But of course, the song was written in 1941 by Walter Kent and Nat Burton. It was one of the most popular Second World War tunes. Um, what can you tell us about Bluebirds? Was it a song that you remember from your childhood, Alan? Do you remember? Is it not? Uh, I don't. Right. I don't remember it. I, the, the, the most I remember of Vera Lynn is actually with the song that was used in, in Dr. Strangelove. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was a huge star um, in the UK. Uh, I looked really long sweet. and hard to find a recording of a, of a Noel Coward song by her because I thought she must have recorded something. And, and she never did? She did. Oh, she did? She did. I think, I think actually London Pride. Oh, okay, which we'll hear in a little while. She recorded that? Uh-huh. Huh, yeah, well, that, that figures. I think she'd be a great, a great voice for that particular song. So let's hear now Bette Midler with her version of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, followed by Vera Lynn with There'll Be Blue Birds Over the White Cliffs of Dover. Voicebox with Alan Farley, we're exploring songs from 1941, the year in which KLW appeared on the scene. We're celebrating the 70th birthday of the station this month with a special show dedicated to songs of that year. We just listened to Bette Midler with her version of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy from the 70s, followed by Vera Lynn with There'll Be Blue Birds Over the White Cliffs of Dover. 
So besides songs rallying people for and against war and songs by the big bands that encouraged people to escape the impending sense of doom, it seems like 1941 was also an important year for the musical stage. Alan, can you tell us about some of the great show tunes of the year? Well, it just happens that I've been working on this series on on Ira Gershwin. That's right. Yeah, it's marvelous. And one of the breakthrough musicals in that period and of that year was uh, Lady in the Dark that he wrote with Kurt Weill, which is probably the major work that he did since the death of his brother George in 1938, I think it was. So he finally he started working with Kurt Weill. But Lady in the Dark was a breakthrough musical. It was it was set in a it's psychiatrist's office. Uh, there was a circus involved in it. It was really a very imaginative and, and not not the standard kind of Broadway show tune or show that you would see at that time. And it just happened, of course, in 1941. Actually, I think it actually opened before we got into the war. I think it opened around the time that KALW opened, uh-huh. early in 1941. And uh, one of the stars of that show, of course, was Gertrude Lawrence, who was also a close colleague of, of Noel Coward, and uh, she made a real hit with uh, Lady in the Dark and a number of the numbers, uh, The Saga of Jenny and, uh, and My Ship. My ship has sailed ever made of silk, the decks are trimmed with gold, and of jam and spice there's a Ships aglow with a million pearls and rubies fill each bin. The sun sits high in the sapphire sky. There once was a girl named Jenny whose virtues were varied and many, excepting that she was. Here on Voicebox tonight, we're celebrating KALW's 70th birthday with songs that come from 1941. With me, Chloe Veltman, in the studio tonight is KALW's longtime anchor, Alan Farley. We've just been discussing some of the seminal works for the musical stage that came out of 1941. We just played two tracks from Lady in the Dark, a 1941 musical with music by Kurt Weill, lyrics by Ira Gershwin and book and direction by Moss Hart. The first one was Gertrude Lawrence's take on My Ship and then we heard Uta Lemper with A Saga of Jenny. Those voices are both very different and, and, and gorgeous in their own ways, Alan. Um, other than Gertrude Lawrence, are there any other voices, when you think of the year 1941, are there any other singers' voices that really come strongly to mind from that period for you? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Bing Crosby. Mm-hmm. He was never as great an interpreter of songs as, as Frank Sinatra was, mm-hmm. but I think for, me, for most of the time he was probably more popular than Sinatra. Huh. And so what do you put his popularity down to then? Just his, his like, you know, his friendliness and yeah. you know, like he was just, more personable, you think? Yeah. 
And what about songwriters? Um, I mean, you know, we've obviously touched on Ira Gershwin, Kurt Vile, Noel Coward. Are there any others from that time? That well, of course, uh, Irving Berlin, right? Rogers and, and Hart, and then Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah, because um, the interesting breakthroughs in theater beside before Lady Nadark, of course, was Showboat in 1937, and in Oklahoma in 1943. Yeah, sort of straddling that that time. Yeah, it seems like it was a very fertile period for the the American musical stage right around then. Let's turn our attention now to Noel Coward. Um, the man was very busy in 1941, it seems, Alan. Can you tell us about a bit about his output that year? Well, actually, he he didn't write many songs that year. Uh, he did write some songs, and he, he got involved in, eventually involved, I don't know if it was as early as 41, in singing for the troops, making... Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's he wanted to be some part of the war effort, and he ha, he spent some time in Paris as a quote spy unquote in, a, <laughs> in an office there, and, but he also spent time in this in this country, and he was there mainly to to see what the uh, this the, what the feeling of of America was toward the war. This is you know before the war, before we entered the war, mm-hmm. the the British government wanted to know what people thought, aside from just what the politicians told mm-hmm. them about the, our feeling about going into the war and about the war. But uh, then he, again, did a lot of, of, of troop uh, tours with his faithful uh, accompanist. And, uh, of course, he wrote, later on, he wrote one of the greatest uh, comedies of all time, that's Blythe Spirit, mm-hmm. in, in a short time, and it was a big success during the war. He wrote some other plays that weren't produced until after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was he was busy. Very, very prolific in that yes. period. So I gather that you have a clip with you of Noel Coward talking about his inspiration for this song London Pride, which uh, was written during the Blitz. Um, where did you find it? Can you tell us about this clip? Oh, it came from his radio program. Mm-hmm. In 1947, he created a syndicated radio program, a 13-week program, that was uh, unusual at its time, the way it was produced and the way it was distributed, it was never heard in the United States. It was only heard outside of England. It was heard in Canada. And through a connection in Canada, I got copies of those programs. Oh, wow. And I actually aired some of them on KALW a Mm -hmm. a few years ago. But for the program, what Coward did is he had his troupe of people who were performing in what he was doing at the time in 1947, and he introduced each of the songs. Mm -hmm. And he himself sang... London Pride, and he introduced it. In the spring of 1941, the town of London was rather a dangerous place to be. It was also a very proud place to be. It was a strange experience to walk through the battered streets on a sunny May morning and see, pushing up gallantly through the rubble and debris that the enemy bombs had left, fresh green grass and, here and there, a little pinky mauve flower. Not very spectacular in itself, but possessing remarkable powers of endurance and determination. That curious flower has a Latin name which is difficult to pronounce. However, it is known all over England, quite simply, as London Pride. I would now like to sing you the song I wrote about it. London pride has been handed down to us London pride is a flower that's free London pride means our own dear town to us And our pride it forever will be 
Walleyser, see the costabettos, the vegetable meadows, and the fruit piled high. Walleyser, little London sparrows, Covent Garden market where the costers cry. Cockney feet mark the beat of history. Every street pins a memory down. That was Noel Coward with London Pride. And before we heard the song, we just heard a little snippet of him talking about his inspiration for the song, which, uh, right. which Alan brought in. And, and there was one thing he didn't mention in that, though, that he wrote in his uh, songbook, and that is that the tune is based on a traditional lavender seller's song, Won't You Buy My Sweet Blooming Lavender? And uh, the age-old melody was appropriated by the Germans and used as a foundation for Deutschland über alles. My goodness, no kidding. So he wrote, I considered that it was time had come for us to have it back in London where it belonged. Wow. That's really fascinating. It was kind of wrenched that way. So that's a protest song in a way. It is a protest (laughs) song. I love Noel Coward's diction. Um, it's every word is so precise. I don't think I know of another singer who, who can who intonates so well. Um, and well, I understand it was because his mother was hard of hearing, <laughs> which I didn't know. Well, that's one way of of achieving a very fine, uh, fine articulation yes. of singing. Then have relatives who who <laughs> you have to be very clear in front of. So another thing that's interesting to me, Alan, is how iconic some of the songs that came out of 1941 went on to be. And we've touched upon a few of these in the shows, you know, by playing uh, song versions from the 1970s and so on uh, of songs that were written back then. But two examples that really stand out for me in particular are both associated with Billie Holiday. God Bless the Child, which Holiday, who co-authored the song, first recorded in 1941, and Man, Oh Where Can You Be?, this song was written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ramirez and James Sherman in 1941 and is particularly associated with Billie Holiday, for whom it was written, and her version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1989. Now, both of these songs have been covered by many, many artists since Holiday first made hits out of them. The likes of Etta James, Patti LaBelle, Linda Ronstadt and Nora Jones recorded Lover Man, and Aretha Franklin, Tony Bennett and Moby are among the artists who recorded God Bless the Child. Is it just great songs? songwriting that made these songs resonate so strongly with future generations, Alan? Or does Billie Holiday's voice have anything to do with the ongoing popularity of the tracks? Oh, I think it's Billie Holiday's voice and her interpretation. She was just one of a kind. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, they are really beautifully written songs, but it's true. I mean, that voice is so powerful that I suppose people did latch onto it even decades later. Right, because, I mean, if if she hadn't, who knows what it would have, if those songs would have gone anywhere. Well, they would have gone somewhere, but probably not reach the iconic status that they have. Yeah, without her, right. So I'd like to play two versions of the songs we've just been talking about. First, we'll hear Lady Day herself with God Bless This Child, and then we'll hear a contemporary recording of Lover Man by Nora Jones. Them that's got that's not shall lose So the Bible said And it still is news Mama may have Papa may have But God bless the child That's got his own That's got his own
Tuned into Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. We just heard God Bless the Child, a Billie Holiday hit from 1941. And then we heard Nora Jones singing Lover Man, a song which Holiday also made famous in 1941. This week's show is coming to a close, sadly. But before we say goodnight, I have one more question for my special guest in the studio tonight, Alan Farley. Alan, would you say on balance that 1941 was a great year for vocal music? And were there any clunkers that year that you can think of? Clunkers? I don't know. I'm just looking at the list of the top tunes, though, and, and one uh, that stands out that was at the top of the list, Frenesy by Artie Shaw. Uh-huh. I don't think that has lasted. <laughs> <laughs> I've never even heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think it was a great year. Thanks so much, Alan, for being my guest on Voicebox this evening. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you about the songs of 1941. There were a few more, but I guess we don't have time for them. Unfortunately <laughs> not. I know. It's really tough to pick a playlist for tonight. You've made a great selection. It's really good. Well, thank you. I with your help. To, well, thank you. <laughs> Voicebox is produced at the studios of KLW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel. The web editor is Victoria Lim. And the membership and development director is John Bischoff. Voicebox can only exist with support from you, our listeners. To find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make a much-needed tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Don't forget that you can now listen to the latest edition of Voicebox and any of the station's other great locally produced music programmes on demand via KALW's online music player. Listen in whenever you like at klw.org music. And you can also keep up with us on Facebook and via Twitter. And we love to hear from you, so please write to us at info at voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, we'll be looking at the women composers who penned some of the pop canon's most treasured vocal music standards. Vocalist and songwriter Pamela Rose joins me in the studio for a discussion about Peggy Lee, Alberta Hunter and some of the other wild women of song whose work has endured over the decades. Join us next Friday from 10 to 11pm here on KLW. I'd like to send us out with one of the most playful tracks I can think of from 1941. Here's Ba Ba Baciami Piccina, Kiss Me Little One, which the Italian singer Alberto Rabagliati debuted. The song was renamed Baciame and Rosemary Clooney made it into a hit in 1952. But we'll be listening to Rabagliati's original. It only remains for me to wish KALW a very happy 70th birthday on behalf of the Voicebox crew. And to all of you listening out there, have a songful week. Ah, 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 ah,